You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. It is great to be here. Uh, For the last two weeks, I've actually been out of town preaching at youth camps. And so over the last two weeks, I have preached 11 sermons to middle school and high school students. As you can imagine, the illustrations from Disney movies abounded and spent a lot of time with teenagers. It was, it was great. I loved it. But I realized something. I love being here on Sunday mornings with City Church. I, uh, I love worshiping here. This is my favorite place to be on Sundays. This is my favorite place to preach. And so I've, I've, missed, I've missed being here the last two weeks. And so before I start, I just want to say, I know this may sound hokey to some people, but I mean it wholeheartedly. City Church, I, I love you. I love you. I love being here. I love preaching here. And I'm excited to look at Psalm 49 with you this morning. Before we dive in, would you pray with me again? Father in heaven, you are so kind to us. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger. You are rich in love, and I praise you. And now I ask God that you would use the truth the truths that we see in your word in this psalm, Psalm 49, that you would use it this morning to transform us, to transform your people. Would you mold us to be more like Jesus? Maybe walk out of this place more like Jesus than when we walked in, I ask. And may the truths that we see in this psalm, may they, may they inspire us to love you more, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you just heard Psalm 49 read. Joel just read that for us. And there are basically two overarching themes in this psalm. Two main sort of points that kind of drive everything that this psalmist says. Number one is this. Everyone's going to die, and you don't have enough money to buy your way out of that problem. That's kind of the first main point. Everyone's going to die, and there's not enough resources in the world to rescue you from death. That's kind of the first point he's making. The second theme, he says this, you can't rescue yourself. You cannot rescue yourself, but God will rescue you. That's it. That's the main point. You can't save yourself, but God will save you. You're going to die, and you can't save yourself, but that's okay, because God has promised to save you. I think I could just finish right there. We can go to the table. That would be an excellent truth. We'll examine a little bit more. As we read this psalm, you sort of get the sense that the psalmist wants us to live as if we know we're going to die. That's sort of the idea we get from here. He knows that that the reality of death, as it gets closer to us, that it will cause us to think differently. Uh, this week, I got a chance to read some research from the University of Virginia. They have a team of people that study humans that have had near-death experiences. And they have a very particular definition for what that is. But they define, they, they estimate that about approximately 5% of the population of the United States have had some near-death experience that has had a profound impact on their life. And here's some of the things they say. Whenever they look at people who have come close to death... They are almost always more spiritual or more religious than before the experience. People who've had a near-death experience are almost always 
less likely to seek power, prestige, or fame than before they had the experience. They, they, they care less about power, prestige, or fame compared to their previous selves. They're almost always significantly less competitive after they've had this experience. Winning doesn't seem to matter to them nearly as much. They generally seem more peaceful. They generally tend to be more kind. And the people around them report that the the priorities of their life clearly change. There's something about having a brush with death or being close to death that seems to wake us up and to shift the way we view the world. It changes the way we, we live. I think this is why the great theologian Tim McGraw once said, Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. What a great request. I hope that all of you get the chance one day to live as if you are dying. Well, Timmy, here's the reality. We are all dying. None of us will escape death. And this should shape the way we live our lives. That, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the point that the psalmist here in Psalm 49 is making. He is emphasizing the fact that we are all going to die. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. He says this, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. Like this psalmist is saying, like, give ear. I'm going to start using that term. <laughs> hey, give ear. It's like, listen up, pay attention, check out what I'm about to tell you. This applies to everyone, all the inhabitants of the earth, low and high, rich and poor, male, female, Republican, Democrat, black, white, Latino, Asian, Vikings fan, Packers fan. It doesn't matter what category you are in, this applies to you. That's what he's saying. Listen up. I'm going to give you something that's really valuable. That's the sentiment we get in the early verses of this psalm. In verse 3, he then says that he's going to give them some wisdom. And then in verse 4, he says, I'm going to solve a riddle. There's a riddle. There's a question that, that has been on your mind. I'm about to give you the answer to that riddle. And as we look through the psalm, it's, it's less of a riddle. It's more of a, a problem. So there's, there's a real problem that all of us face. I'm about to give you the answer on how to address that problem, that question you've been having. And then in verse 5, he begins to unpack the problem itself. He says this in verse 5, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? So apparently the author of this psalm, he's observing a bunch of people around him that are unethical or immoral. They've cheated him, and apparently they've got lots of wealth, right? The abundance of riches, he says here. They're they're all around him. And it almost could seem like, I wonder, do these guys have enough money to transcend the problem I'm about to tell you about. It, 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 it causes me to fear when I wonder, do these guys have the resources to avoid the problem that I know I'm facing? And then, and then as you go through the psalm, you can see he sort of challenges himself. He sort of reminds himself, of course they don't have enough money. This problem is too big for money to solve. Look, look at verse 7. He says this. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life 
is costly. The ransom of their life is costly. What it costs to ransom someone is an extremely high price to pay. You don't have enough resources or money in this world to ransom yourself. And there's no one you know that has enough resources to ransom you. No one. Not the wealthiest people on the planet have enough resources to escape the punishment that awaits all of us. This is the problem we all face. And if you skip to verse 10, he kind of goes back to the theme of making sure you know this applies to all people. It applies to wise people and foolish people. There's no one outside of this. And then in verse 10, he begins to unpack the problem more. Excuse me, verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. He says this. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. What we start to get from this psalmist is this very dark, sort of grim picture of of what's to come. And that is death. The grave is going to be your home forever, he says. And then look at the last line of verse 11. He says this. Though they called lands by their own names... The psalmist here, he's, he's specifically alluding to people who spend lots of energy or have the ability to have lands named after them. If you've ever walked around a large college campus, and almost every building on a large college campus is named after some person who gave a lot of money to that particular college. And certainly not always, but, but I've been around some people who have given money to large institutions, and often there's this desire to build legacy. There's this desire to sort of transcend death. Listen, I may physically die, but my name and my legacy will live on forever. So the psalmist is is alluding to the fact that there's people who behave as if being famous or having their names on stuff is going to somehow soften the blow when death attacks. But these efforts are futile. Nothing will soften the blow. Look at verse 12. He says this, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. Human beings, with all of their pomp and circumstance, with all of their creative ideas and buildings and TV shows, even those who name estates after themselves, even those who are the most famous, all of them are going to die just like the animals in the wilderness die. No one can get out of this. He, he's, he echoes this sentiment again at the end of the psalm in verse 20. He says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. No matter how brilliant you are, no matter how creative you are, no matter what you accomplish in this life, no matter how famous you are, if you do not have right understanding, you're no better off than animals when you die. Just like animals cannot avoid death, Neither can we. Death is coming. It's coming. This is a sobering reality, right, that the psalmist wants to to present to us. I remember, I don't know if you remember the first time you ever thought about death. I remember pretty vividly the first time I ever thought about death or dying. I was about six years old, and I was at a funeral. My uncle Ray, my dad's younger brother, had died at the age of 27, and, uh, I don't, and when you're six, you don't really have an understanding of that. I now realize, wow, how young it is to die at 27. 
And I, and I think it was the first funeral, funeral I ever attended in my life. I, I don't remember one before that. Uh, I remember my dad taking me up to the casket to say goodbye to my Uncle Ray. And my instinct was to reach out and touch him. So I touched his forehead, and it was cold, which I was not expecting. I, I don't know what I was expecting. I had never touched a person that was cold like that. And it, it, it startled me. I, took, I literally took a couple steps back. It, it really scared me. And I remember in that moment, from that day on for several years, I thought about death often. I don't know if other six or seven-year-olds do this, but I thought about dying regularly. And it, I got to be honest, it gripped me. There was this real fear that was kind of unbearable that would grip me sometimes. And I, I can't help but wonder if the Lord used that as a, as a means of guiding me to himself uh, in, during my middle school years. For several years, I would ask people about death. Regularly, I, every couple months, I remember having a conversation with some adult where I would ask them about death and do you know what happens after we die? Is there a God? Is there something beyond this? I remember having those conversations and I used to get really lame answers. No one around me could give me good answers. The, the lamest, the lamest one of all, I'll never forget, was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. I went to my homeroom teacher, Mrs. Carr. And I went to her during homeroom one day in seventh grade. And I said, Mrs. Carr, I'd love to ask you a question about death. Do you know what happens after you die? And she said to me, Kenneth, the very firm voice, Kenneth, in polite company, you should never discuss religion or politics. And that question is in the category of religion. And I thought to myself, I walked away thinking, that has got to be the lamest answer I have ever gotten to this question. Don't give that answer to anyone. About a year later, I actually came to faith in Christ at the age of 13. And I remember it was when I became a Christian, it was the first time in my life where that fear really was alleviated. Where I was confident that if I died, I would be with Jesus. I didn't understand the doctrine or the theology. I didn't really understand what the Bible said about this. But I had a sense of peace that I could die and it would be okay. That actually dying, in some ways, would be very good because I would be with Jesus. And then I remember throughout my middle school and high school years, looking back on some of those conversations I had and being so frustrated with people who would just shrug off death as if it was no big deal. And since then, I've had this experience multiple times, some of you probably experienced this, where you'll be in a conversation with someone and death will come up and someone, sometimes people will say something like, oh, well, let's not talk about that. That's a sad thing. Let's focus on, let's focus on happier things. There's actually a, a, a recent poll from CBS News. It says that 54% of Americans report not wanting to talk about death. 31% of Americans report that they're somewhat willing to talk about death. And only 14% of Americans say that they are willing to talk about death. I mean, you're talking almost three quarters of the population that are saying, listen, I, I, want, I don't even want to, I want to pretend like none of us are going to die and we're just going to go on pretending like it's all good pretending like it's not going to happen. But the reality is that death is one of the most important aspects of life. I recently heard a pastor say that one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to help people die well. That's one of our jobs as pastors here at City Church, is to invest in you and shepherd you and equip you so that when you die, it will be a good thing, that you will see Jesus Death is one of the most important aspects of life. And if this is something that's so important, 
we should, we should think about it, and we should think about it well. If we're all going to die, we should have a proper understanding of death, and that immediately provokes the question, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? That's a great question. Many of you already have some decent understanding of this or thorough understanding, but if you don't, I want to look at some passages of Scripture this morning that really tell us about what happens when we die. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So we're all going to die. Unless Jesus comes back very soon, every single person in this room is going to meet death. And then when that happens comes judgment. He says, and then Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus is the judge. So when we die, we should expect to be judged by Jesus who judges the living and the dead. And friends, hear this. If your sins have not been forgiven, if your sins have not been forgiven, that judgment will not go well for you. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says this, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all because all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The wages, the paycheck you have earned is death. This is not something God arbitrarily gives. It's not like God is going, oh, I'm mad today. You're going to hell. That's not how it works. No, no. The, the death that comes our way is the wages we have earned. In Matthew 25, verse 46 Jesus tells us that there will be some people condemned to eternal punishment. There will be people condemned to eternal punishment. Revelation 21 tells us that there will be some who are thrown into a lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. Hear this very clearly. Upon physical death, there will be some who are thrown into a lake of fire. And in Revelation 14, it tells us that the smoke of their torment shall ascend up forever and ever. Some will physically die and be thrown into a lake of fire, and the smoke from their torment will go up forever and ever. In our psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 49, verse 14, he says this, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. There is some dispute amongst Bible scholars as to exactly what Sheol is. Some say it refers to the afterlife for all people. Some say it's the afterlife only for those who are wicked. In the majority of the time when Sheol is discussed, it's, a, it's discussed in a negative, in negative light. Exactly what Sheol is is not necessarily relevant for our purposes this morning. The point is simply this, that all of us are appointed to die, and it's not going to be good. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Death will be their shepherd. They will be consumed. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You should be afraid for God to get his hands on you, is the sentiment in Hebrews 10. 
The idea of dying and facing the judgment of God should terrorize humanity. Because when we face God, God is going to judge us. He's going to demand a payment, and none of us have enough money to pay the payment. He's going to demand a ransom payment, and even the most wealthy person will not have enough. None of us will have the money to pay the debt that is is owed. This should be a frightening reality for humanity. Unless, unless, unless of course someone else has already paid the debt for you. The very next verse, Psalm 49 verse 15, this is the the key verse in the passage. It says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. But God, he will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. The bulk of Psalm 49, the author has been telling us that we're going to die. Death is going to be our shepherd. The grave is going to consume us. There's nothing we can do about it. This should terrify terrify us, terrify us. There's not enough resources in the world to get yourself out of this predicament. But God, these two words, two of the most powerful words you could ever put together. We see these words throughout the Bible, most famously in in, in the book of Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul outlines that we were enemies of God, that we were depraved, that we were children of wrath, and he says, but God. That's the the words here in verse 15. Yes, we were sinful, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous 20th century Welsh preacher, medical doctor turned preacher, he, he said this. These words, but God, these two words in and of themselves are kind of an epitome or summary of the content of the gospel. In those two words right there, the gospel is summarized. But God. We were sinful. We deserve death. But God. These two words should be on the lips of the Christians every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Yes, we are sinful, but God will intervene and atone for our sin. Yes, it is true. We cannot save ourselves, but God will intervene and he will save us. Yes, death is coming for us. That is bad. But God will intervene and he will protect us. Yes, it is true. We cannot ransom ourselves, but God has promised to ransom our souls. City's Church, that changes everything. The way we view death completely changes when we know that the ransom has been paid. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said this, speaking of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to pay the ransom that we could not afford. Jesus Christ, God himself, God incarnate, became a man, walked among us, lived the perfect life that we should have lived but could not, died a brutal death on the cross in our place. It should have been you on the cross. It should have been me. But Jesus did it for us. 
He paid the ransom we could not pay. And because of that, because of that, we can face death very differently. Romans 4.25 says this, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to redeem us. Galatians 3, verse 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Those are awake and asleep are euphemisms for alive or dead. Christ died for us. So whether we're physically alive on this earth or whether physically dead and we're with him in eternity, either way, we are alive. Even when we die physically, we will still be alive. There's no need to fear death. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is the righteous, dying for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. John three sixteen, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Pastor Jonathan preached on it a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Just a few verses later, John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. In John chapter 6, verse 37, it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. If you come to me, I'm never going to cast you out. Three verses later, John 6.40, Jesus says this, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. You don't want to die? Look to the Son. You will have eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And in the last verse, I'll read from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus again speaking. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though you die physically, yet you will always live. You may die physically, and we all will. Yet, church, we will live. We will live. Not because we had the ability to ransom ourselves, but because he ransomed us. But God, those two powerful words, I'll say it again from Psalm 49, 15. But God will ransom my soul. And while we physically die, we will never die. Matthew Henry was the 17th century pastor and Bible commentator. He says this, he whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet on the grave. Thomas Brooks, another 17th century preacher, pastor, theologian, he said this, a Christian knows 
that death shall be the funeral of his sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his temptations, his vexations, his oppressions, his persecutions. He knows that death shall be the resurrection of all of his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, his contentments. When someone dies, it is tragic. We miss them. We mourn the reality of death. But when someone who is a believer dies and we go to a funeral, we are celebrating that they have not died. We celebrate that the power of sin over their life has died. We are celebrating that their hopes and joys and delights and comforts and contentments have been resurrected. And therefore, we can face death differently. Here's how the Bible, some of the apostles approached death. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. If I were to die, I would gain something incredible. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's talking about Christians that have died. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Again, a euphemism for death that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. When a believer dies, it is sad. It is appropriate for us to mourn. But brothers, sisters, do not mourn like those who do not have hope. Do not mourn as those who do not know that this person, while they are physically dead, are alive in the presence of Jesus. Romans 14, the Apostle Paul says this, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. That confidence from Paul. This is why we sing words like we sang a moment ago, that death was once my great opponent, fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. This is why we read lyrics like from that song we all love, In Christ Alone, well, I love, and you should love, I hope. That's why we sing, we sing those lyrics like, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. We sing those lyrics with confidence because he has ransomed our souls. If he had not ransomed us, we could not sing those songs. The last verse I want to look at this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15. You can't talk about death without quoting 1 Corinthians 15. At the very end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking to death. And you get the sense from Paul, he's kind of trash talking. He's kind of like, like a guy on the basketball court talking smack, or a guy on the pitch for my soccer fans. Okay. He, he, he's the guy, he's looking at death, is what he says. You can, you can kind of sense the bravado. He's like, hey, death, where is your victory? <laughs> hey, death, where is your sting? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I don't know, maybe some, maybe some guys have done this, experienced this, where, where you're hanging out with someone who's talking a lot. They talk a good game. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm so great. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then you get on the court, and you kind of beat them pretty bad, and you're like, bro, like, that's, 
Like about a year ago, I was hanging out with, a, with one of my nephews. He's like 12, and he was talking smack about beating me in Madden. I'm like, bro. I beat him. It was like, I think it was like 77 to 10. I don't take mercy on the 12-year-old. Don't. Mm. He was talking smack, and I beat him bad. I'm like, is, is that really all you got? Is it, you were talking a good game. Is that really all you got? That's the sentiment we get from the Apostle Paul here, talking to death. Death, what were you saying? You were going to be my shepherd? You were going to consume me? You were going to overwhelm me? What, what was that death? What did you have to say to me? What was that? What was all that junk you were talking, huh? Then he says this in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. In verse 57, he says, but... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking at death and saying, death, you ain't got nothing on me, death. But he's not boasting in himself. He is saying, thanks be to God because it is Christ who gave me the victory over you, death. You ain't got nothing on me because he has ransomed my soul. Paul is boasting, not because he has earned the right to boast, but because Christ did what needed to be done to ransom his soul. And friends, we can have the same confidence. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, when you face death in this life, it will be painful. It will be tragic. You will mourn. You will cry. It is real. And then you can look at death and say, death you ain't got nothing on me because he has ransomed my soul and he will receive me. Not because of what I've done, because the power of Christ in me. And that's why we come to this table every single week. We come to this table every single week to boast of what Christ has done, that he has given us the victory over death, sin, and the grave. When we take communion, we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are looking at death and saying, oh, where is your sting? Oh, where is your victory? In Christ, what he did because of him, I can face death because he ransomed our souls. In just a moment, the pastors are going to come. We'll serve the, the bread first. Hold that. We'll take together, and then we'll come back and serve the wine. This meal is open for anyone who's a believer in Jesus. If you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we would invite you to participate. If you are here and you are not a believer this morning, I'm glad you're here, but I would encourage you, do not take communion with us. Just when it comes, let the tray pass. But don't let the moment pass. If you are not a believer today, I encourage you, instead of taking communion with us, take Christ instead. If you have any questions about what that means, what it looks like, come up to after the service. I'll be up here. I'd love to have a conversation with anyone about that. As I said, we'll pass the bread. The bread is gluten-free. Hold it. Partake. We'll partake together. Cities Church, your soul has been ransomed. He will receive you. Let's celebrate that this morning. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.